Here we are now, with episode number 18 of our series, You Are the Chosen One. It's the last episode, the last stretch of the journey. (laughs) What a ride it's been, but we ain't there yet. We still got to get through to the end. And wow, I'm so glad I'm just been I've just been giggling the whole way through. <laughs> so, where are we up to? Harry and his friends, well, they just love getting into mischief, don't they? They're just such a mischievous bunch, aren't they? They broke into Gringotts and rode out on a flying dragon that's causing all this havoc. Wow. Well, of course I say flying dragon, well, All dragons fly, I think. Has there ever been a dragon that doesn't fly? Or that can't fly? I don't know. Probably not. I think it's one of the defining characteristics of dragons. That they can fly. So, Harry and his friends, well, they're sort of back to square one, but they've sort of had some victories as well, and things are coming to a head. And Harry decides... Well, let's go back to Hogwarts, because they think one of the Horcruxes might be there. They think that this might be a place that Voldemort has hidden part of his soul. So they need to go back and and find it and destroy it so that he can be finally destroyed. And with a little bit of help from Aberforth... Harry and his friends are able to sneak back into Hogwarts via a secret passage. And Aberforth, well, he's Dumbledore's brother. And he's got a lot of different things to say to Harry. And I believe it's in this scene where it comes out that Dumbledore had a sister which died in mysterious circumstances. And Aberforth, well, he's a complex character. He's a very deep character. And we only see a very little bit of him here in this novel, in this place in where we are in our narrative. But still we see that there's a lot of depth to him. And he's not exactly... He's not exactly holding Dumbledore in positive light He's one of these people who sort of feel now, was Dumbledore really the noble man that some of these younger kids think he was? And we get a bit of a, more of a history and Harry finds out more about Dumbledore sort of through the, the opinion or the perspective or the experiences that Aberforth has and he tells some of the backstory. And, and Aberforth, well, he's sort of also got this thing of like, why are you running around? Why are you, why are you, you know, why are you causing all this mischief? Why, why worry about this? Why, Harry? You don't need to be the hero of the day. Just live your life in peace. Why are you, what's the point? And this is an echo, actually, which is similar to what Ollivander the Wand Maker was like with Harry. And you notice that these two characters have something in common, which is that they're old men and they could even in some ways 
fit the profile of the wise old men wise old man archetype you remember we asked this question of well now that dumbledore's dead who's going to be the wise old man for harry and it looks at first glance that well maybe olivander could be he's an old man he seems to be wise he seems to he's been around for a while or what about aberforth dumbledore's brother he must be very similar to dumbledore he must also have wisdom You'd think, but actually, what's happening, when we look a little bit closer, we see that these are not the wise old men. They have a very different role to play. They have a very different understanding of how the world works. And they have a very different relationship to Harry, which is that they're saying, well, what's the point? And Aberforth sort of says, you know, well, I, I knew Dumbledore better than you, and he was often conspiring these webs of stories or plans to have hatch, and they never worked out. So don't play into Dumbledore's plan. And you see Harry's resolve. You see Harry has matured beyond the need for a wise old man. He's already made peace with it. He's already clear in what he needs to do. He's already set in what he's going to do. And just like he said to Ollivander, he says to Aberforth, I'm going to do this. This is what must be done. And you can either help me or not. So that shows a very different growth in Harry. And a very different place of where he is in his perspective because of these relationships that he has. And there's also the painting on the wall of Aberforth and Dumbledore's sister. And that is actually the, I believe that's the magic door they, they, that goes into the secret passage and Harry and his friends, well, they go into the secret passage, and who do they meet first? Well, it's Neville. Who would have thought? Harry's friend Neville. How are you doing, Neville? And the tone, and the, this, this encounter is so revealing of the arc of this character, Neville. And we haven't seen so much of Neville. He hasn't really been prominent at all that much but here when harry runs into him it's like he's a totally different person i mean he's still neville but he's a totally different person he's sort of you know filling harry in like he's the here are the facts here's what's happening at hogwarts you know snape is headmaster and defense against the glass arts had these evil spells and a bunch of my friends refused to do this and we've been putting up a resistance so we've got this secret hideout and he's sort of you know, he's talking and talking and talking and giving Harry all this information and filling him in. And he's sort of saying it like, yeah, it's matter of fact, no problem. You know, we're being oppressed and the evil the evil people are dominating us. And and Neville, he's sort of tired. He, he looks sort of tired. He looks sort of worn down. But really, he's got this, like, what do we say? He's got the leadership qualities. He's got the confidence of... Here's the job to be done, and we just do the job because that's what needs to be done. 
And this is totally different to, well, the character in the first novel, which was Neville, who was sort of bumbling around and he'd forget his toad and he'd lose his memorable and he'd need help and he'd be clubsy and something would explode or... Oh, no, that was the other one. There was another character that kept blowing things up. Sean, I think it was. I forgot his name, but that was a different character. But basically, Neville is... Well, he's the... The, the bumbling buffoon in the first character, the incompetent. And here, well, now he's the leader. Now he's the guy that's getting everyone together, and he's the one that greets Harry Potter. And as they go in and they make their way through the magic door into the castle, Harry is greeted with a cheer. And there is a huge boost in morale. There's a great celebration for everyone to be seeing Harry. And wow, what a relief it must have been. Like, what what are all his friends thinking? Like, they must have at least some gossip or some idea of what's going on. I mean, they know that, you know, Dumbledore's no longer around. They know that the Dark Lords arrived. They know that there's probably corruption in the Ministry of Magic. You know, that Voldemort's out to get Harry. Well, Harry didn't turn up at school this year. And well, who's Harry? Well, he's the guy that was in the Goblet of Fire and he did all this and he was in the Chamber of Secrets. And, you know, Harry's a, he's, he's either the he's a, either the one you love him or you hate him at this stage of the story. You're either good or you're evil at this stage. And so all his friends have had no information like, where's Harry? He's missing. Has the evil guy got him? Is he in trouble? What are his plans? What are we to do? And here he is, and he turns up in all his glory. And it is a bold statement for Harry to announce he's going back to Hogwarts and he's going to have it out. And this is the final resolve. This is the deep fruition of Harry. It's the bravery, it's the heroic nature of Harry coming to its peak. And there's a bit of back and forth and congratulations and wow, so great to see you and let's have a cup of tea and what can you tell us, Harry? And just seeing you is enough to see that things are going to turn around soon. And Harry sort of, you know, he stands up and he says, well, hello, everyone. And he's got to make a speech. And He says, okay, so actually we've got something to do. We've got work to do. And they're like, okay, great. We're all here. We're all here to help you and we can follow you. And Harry says, "Uh, we're looking for an object and it's a a very important object. Yes. And they all sort of stand there and go, hang on, what? And sort of scratching their heads and saying, "Well, well, can you elaborate a little bit? Are we allowed to have Q&A over, over this, or is this, this, this is all the instructions you're going to give us? And Harry's thinking, well, okay, he can't really explain that it's a Horcrux, because he doesn't have time to go into Horcrux theory, and he also doesn't want them to know that it's a Horcrux, because, well, he doesn't want it to get out that Harry is looking for the Horcrux, because then it might get back to the bad guys that that's what they're doing. And he might say, well, what does it look like? Well, Harry himself doesn't even know what it looks like. He's got some ideas, but not really. And also, we've got to find it really, really soon. 
So Harry's sort of standing there with all this leadership and yes, we've got to find something important. Okay, thank you, Harry. Very good. Off we go. Yes, let's go. And so <laughs> it's very it's very funny how this is played out, but all his friends, well, they get into this thing of, okay, let's help Harry, and they all help in sort of different ways, and still ongoing. It's now ongoing, this thing of Harry and his friends brainstorming. They're trying to figure it out. How do we figure out what it is, where it is? So, what happens next? Well, the news gets around that Harry Potter is back and Snape calls a meeting with the whole school. And Snape basically says, if you are found to be helping Harry Potter, you will be punished. And it's at this moment, Harry comes out and he says, here I am, let's fight. Let's have it on. And, well, people come to help Harry as well. Like Pro Professor McGonagall steps in and she's decided, you know what, I'm on Harry's side. And, well, Snape, he's sort of, he's sort of a little bit over his head in this situation. Now that all the students have sort of united, the students and the teachers are united, it's too much for him to handle. So he makes a quick escape. And, well, now we know it's showtime. Now we know it's good versus evil. And then there is the Battle of Hogwarts. And Professor McGonagall, she has this very funny line in the, in the movie, which is, you know, she's doing the magic spell to get all the gargoyles down to help with protecting and she's saying, you know, she's doing this big long speech of protect our school. We are in grave danger. The evil people are coming, this sort of thing. And then she sort of, sort of turns to Harry and says, I've always wanted to do that spell. <laughs> and it's, it's very funny. There's wonderful comic relief throughout this. So the battle is on and Harry and his friends keep looking for the Horcrux and the bad guys bring up this big army and Voldemort himself comes up and and it's really well done in the movie. It's this huge, you know, there's electricity storms and there are magic spells going everywhere and there are, there are giants and there are creatures and it's just, wow, it's just all over the place. And there's a, there's a philosophical statement. Well, there's not, not a philosophical statement. There's a what do we say, like a cultural statement that the final battle is done in the school. Which is, well, why is it in the school? Is it because that's just where the main settings of the novels have been? Well, we could say that, but we could say, well, why not have the final battle in the Ministry of Magic or somewhere else? And... The cultural statement is that, well, it's in the education system that the battle takes place. It's in the schools 
that the worldviews clash. It's in the age where people are coming of age, children are growing up, that perspectives collide. So Harry has been on this journey of growing up, of coming into a new way of seeing the world, a new way of understanding the world through school and through his adventures and through the people that he's encountered. And all that is, well, it's so deeply entwined in the education system. And who controls the education system? Well, they control the the perspectives of the masses in many ways. And maybe it's different now because we have more free-flowing information, but maybe not. So I think it's very fitting that the final battle happened in the school. So there's this moment where Harry saves Malfoy's life, Malfoy's life. And I don't know if I really understand all the circumstances, but I believe there's a fire in one of the magic rooms, the room of requirement, because Harry, uh, Malfoy's friend has sort of done this spell and it's gone wrong, which has caused this giant fire to burn, start burning everything down. And Harry's flying out on his broom with his friends, and Malfoy is also there. And it's sort of like this moment of, oh, is Malfoy a good guy or a bad guy? And Harry just sort of doesn't think much about it and decides to save him and pull him out. And... I think even in the Battle of Hogwarts, there was another occasion even where Harry had saved Malfoy's life. And this was actually the second time, if my, if my trivia is correct. And so now it's like, I, I've saved your neck twice, Malfoy. Feel, how grateful do you feel like this? And Ron, Ron has this funny line of, oh, if... If we die because of we're trying to save him, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> That's also another very comic relief in the movie, which is, you know, it's this big serious moment. You know, our heroes are almost dead from this thing. And they're doing this heroic thing of saving someone who doesn't really deserve to be saved. And yet, even in that, Ron has a sense of humor. And we can look at this and we'll say, well, it's all on Harry for being the hero and saving Malfoy. But we realize, actually, Malfoy, he's also sort of saved Harry back when he could have identified them as Harry Potter, when he had that thing on his face to hide his identity and he'd been caught by the Death Eaters. That was, that, that was the moment where Malfoy could have had him done in for, but he was actually thinking, you know, maybe I shouldn't. And then there was also, I mean, Malfoy and Harry have a history because there was also this moment where Harry had done the spell, the Septrum Centra spell on, on Malfoy and almost killed him. And it was very lucky that Snape was around to save Malfoy 
and help Malfoy. And if he hadn't have, well, maybe Harry would have actually killed Malfoy. So it's not so simple if we look at, if we consider the, the history of Harry and Malfoy as to who's the good guy and how do we how do we balance the equation it's not a it's not a black and white balancing so that's an important pl- part of this plot it's an important character it's an important relationship that happens and i believe they I believe they find the Horcrux, and then Ron kills it with one of the horns from the snake, one of the fangs from the snake, which means that by this stage, I think they're, they're, they've killed almost all of the Horcruxes except for the snake. The snake is the last one, and Voldemort realizes this, and it means that if you kill... If you kill the snake and Voldemort, then he's done. And yet, if you only so if you only kill the snake, then Voldemort's still alive. Or if you only kill Voldemort, then the snake will bring him back. That sort of thing. They get to this sort of situation, and Voldemort is going around with this wand, which is the Deathly Hallows wand. He's found the Eldar wand because he stole it from Dumbledore's grave. And he's trying to get it to work. He's trying to get it to... There's something going wrong with it. There's something not quite right. It's not working for him. And he's working out why. He's trying to see why isn't this working. And there's a... Well, there's a terms and conditions in wands. (laughs) There's a magic theory, which is the loyalty of the wand. And it comes back to something, well, which was in the very first book which is that the wand chooses the wizard. And Voldemort gets it in his mind that the wand will only serve the person if you kill its former master. And Voldemort is thinking, well, who killed Dumbledore? Because I took the wand from Dumbledore, so who killed Dumbledore? Snape killed Dumbledore. So Voldemort thinks, I will have to kill Snape. And, well, Snape is summoned to Dumbledore. Uh, Not to Dumbledore, to Voldemort. Better not get that wrong. (laughs) Snape is summoned to Voldemort. And at this stage, it's very much clear that Snape is a bad guy. He's definitely a bad guy. I mean, he's run away from the goodies. He's serving Voldemort. He's done all these things for him. And he turns up like a good servant. And uh, and Voldemort kills him. After a very cold-hearted speech about how you've been such a good servant. And how it must be done because you killed Dumbledore. Voldemort simply kills him. And at that moment, by chance, Harry is able to come in and Voldemort has left 
with the snake, left him for dead. And Harry comes in and Snape is on his last breaths. He's at the last moments of his life. And a single tear is coming out of his eye. And he gestures to Harry to take the tear. And Harry gets a little flask and puts it in. And Snape turns and looks into Harry's eyes. And he says, You have your mother's eyes. Whoa. What a way to go out. What a thing to say with your last breath. And Harry just sort of sits there for a moment with this dead Snape. Professor Snape is dead. And the last thing he said was, you have your mother's eyes. And now he's got this single tear in this tiny flask. And we know there's a lot in a tear because it contains the memories of the person. And Harry's well experienced with this because he's had lessons from Snape in occlumency and memory reading and interior world navigation. That's part of their history. So Harry well understands the significance of this tear. And a voice calls out and it's Voldemort making an announcement and he says, you know, let's let's finish up this battle because enough people have been hurt and killed and it's not it's not worth the trouble. I just want to have a one-on-one with Harry Potter. So take some time to brush yourselves off have a shower, clean your teeth, and then we'll have a battle with Harry Potter. I mean, he doesn't talk like that, but I'm just saying the effect. And so Harry says, well, this is my chance to see what is in this tear, to see what this memory is, is, if it has any information that can help. And he goes to Dumbledore's office, headmaster's old office, to tip the tear into the magic bowl the pensive, I believe it's called, and go into the memory. And what does he see? What does he find? What could Snape possibly know that would change Harry's course, that would help Harry at all in his final heroic moment? And when he goes into that memory, he is brought all the way back, back, back in time, all the way to his Auntie Petunia's childhood. Aunt Petunia? The one who raised Harry? Why are we going all the way back there? Well, we go all the way back there because Petunia had a sister, which was Harry's mother. But we're now 
in the time which is their childhood, long before Harry was born. This is a deep, deep memory. And Harry's mother is making friends with a boy, a very young Severus Snape. And these two people, these two children, this boy and this girl, are working something out between them, which is that they can do magic. And no one's ever told them about this. It's a totally new thing. And together, they form this close friendship as they discover magic. And, well, Auntie Petunia, the sister of Harry's mother, is, well, she's a little bit jealous. She sees that she's her sister's making friends with this boy. Why can't you be friends with me? And as time goes on, well, we find out that she is a witch. And she gets a letter from a magic school. And, well, Petunia and Lily, well, they're not going to be together anymore because Lily's going off to magic school and you have to go to the normal school. And Petunia even wrote letters to the headmaster of that school. Please let me in. Oh, I really want to go in. But it didn't work out. And this shows, well, Aunt Petunia is hurt. She feels left out. She's got jealousy. She's got a lot of different complex emotions that are deep-seated in her early childhood. And for Snape, well, just like Harry and Hagrid have a special friendship because Hagrid was the first person to show Harry around the magic world. I mean, anyone could have done that job. It just so happens that it was Hagrid, which means that, well, they're just going to be special friends. That's just how it is. They're just friends. And in the case of Snape and Lily, well, they're childhood friends. And not only that, but they're also friends first to discover the world of magic together. And as they get a little bit older, well, this turns into, it's suggested that it turns into a bit of a romance. And there is a romantic interest. And it might mean that, well, sometime soon, Snape and Lily Potter could be more than just friends. And that would be a very deep relationship. That would be something very profound if a childhood friendship and a first found magic friendship would bloom into a romantic relationship. And now we see, well, the information that Mr. Potter, James Potter, came along. Well, what, what, was, what was Lily's maiden name? I realise she wouldn't have been Lily Potter until after she married Harry's father. So I don't know what the maiden name is. Dursley, I guess it would be, but maybe, no, no, because that would be Mr. Dursley's. Petunia would have taken Mr. Dursley's name. So, I don't know. That can be, we can leave that one for the, the deep hardcore fan trivia night for Harry Potter. <laughs> we, can, we, could say, we could put that one in the board game. What is Harry Potter's mother's maiden name? <laughs> that would be a pretty, pretty obscure question. But 
Okay, so where, where do we get off? Okay, so back to our story. Then we see that Harry's father, well, he's butting in, isn't he? He's taken Lily from Snape. And this is where all his bitterness comes from. Now his, his resentment towards Harry makes perfect sense. Because every time Snape looks at Harry, he sees both the woman that he loved and the man that stole her from him. And not just any man, but a man who was a bully, a man who was really mean, a man who was humiliating Snape in front of his friends. And it's quite an obvious, it's quite a logical reaction to have to someone. Because if you look at someone and they remind you of the person you loved most deeply, well then the logical thing is to just push them away. Don't go into that love. Because there's so much hurt. Snape has carried this hurt with him his whole life. And the last things, the last thing that Snape saw before he died was Harry's eyes, the eyes of his beloved Lily. And the vision continues. And there's a conversation between Snape and Dumbledore. This is still in the the memory world of Snape's tear. And it comes out that, well, some of the magic has gone wrong with Voldemort creating these Horcruxes, which has meant that an eighth Horcrux has been created, which is Harry which means quite literally there is part of Voldemort's soul in Harry. And Harry is now watching this memory of Snape and Dumbledore discussing this because they work it out. They realise, well, this is what's happening. And this means that Harry has to die. Harry has to be killed. Because there's no way to separate the two things out. It's fused in with him. It's part of him. So if Voldemort's going to die, Harry has to die. And Snape sort of has the way of looking at this that, well, Dumbledore, you know this, and yet you're raising Harry and watching him very closely as if to say you're taking care of him, but really you're watching him to see that he won't turn into something evil. I believe the phrase is, you're raising him as cattle to be slaughtered. And Dumbledore sort of has this thing of, well, well, how do you see this? Don't tell me that you actually love this boy. Don't tell me that you actually care for this boy. And well, when we understand that Snape loved Harry's mother, we can see that Snape did love Harry. And in that moment, in this conversation... In this argument that Snape and Dumbledore are having, Snape throws out his Patronus spell, which is like the guardian angel spell. This had appeared to Harry and Ron 
in their critical time of need, which shows that, well, Snape was, in a way, looking over Harry. And if we look back through the novels in all the different interactions they have, you can see that Snape was in a very roundabout way, in a very in-the-background sort of way, looking out for Harry. Even in the first novel, when someone was putting a charm on Harry to fall off his broom in one of the games, well, it was actually Snape offering the counter-curse. And Harry and his friends had thought, well, Snape was doing the curse, when not really. So this is the shift. This is the, the giant plot shift of the entire series. This is the, the thing that flips all our assumptions about all the characters on their head. And, well, it, it all comes down to love. It all comes down to someone who has a very deep love and yet has been hurt and carries a lot of darkness, which is Snape. Snape is the hero of the story. Snape is the chosen one. He was chosen to do the things that were required. And then the other side of this that comes out is that, well, Dumbledore asked Snape to kill him. Because for one thing, Dumbledore's already old. And he was already sick and he'd already had things go wrong with him. And I don't know the details of the magic. It might have been that Dumbledore killed a Horcrux, but then the Horcrux went into him so that he also has to die or something like that. I don't know the official magic story or the official trivia of it. So... This is a very important moment. It's the, it's the flip of the entire narrative. And we find that this Snape character, when he comes out, when it's understood, then, well, now it all makes sense. Now it really does all tie together. So Harry comes out of the memory and he understands now that he has to die because a part of Dumbledore, a part of Voldemort is in him. And he makes peace with it. He sort of has had so many big shifts in his maturity that he's able to use his resolve and his contemplation and his experience and everything to make peace with it and realize that he has to step up and this will be his final moment, his meeting with Voldemort and dying. So they arrange to meet in the dark forest and Harry has his 
invisibility cloak. And he also has the snitch. That Dumbledore had left him in his will. And he reads on the back of the snitch, I open at the close. And for so long, Harry and his friends have been trying to work out what this means because it's a bit paradoxical. It's a bit like a a riddle. Sort of a, a contradiction. But now that Harry's made peace with the fact that he's going to die, he reads it and he says, oh, it makes perfect sense now. This is so simple to understand. And he puts it up to his lips and he says, I am about to die. And the snitch opens. And then out comes the resurrection stone. And this ties into the perfect illustration. It's a, it's a beautiful poetic illustration of death as an ending and a beginning. Death as something that is final and yet not final. And that's really what Harry is facing, is, is this openness. Open and closed. Life and death. That's the correlation here. And it's only that he opens to death that he can really make peace with it and overcome it. I open at the close. And that's how he's been able to figure out in a very poetic way, in a very mature way, and also very simply. Things have become very simple for Harry in this last hour of his life. I mean, he's done so much scrambling, so much thinking, so much trying, so many visions, so many adventures, so many, it's all over the place, so much hustling. And then ever since he's come out of this memory from Snape, things have been simple because he's made peace with the fact that he's going to die. And as soon as he knew that, well, he knew exactly what he had to do And everything that he was, even this thing, even this problem of how do we open this snitch becomes a non-problem. It's very simple. He just says to it, I am about to die. And that solves the riddle. So Harry's got two out of three of the Deathly Hallows at this stage because he's got the invisibility cloak, he's got the resurrection stone, and Voldemort has the Eldar wand. And Harry turns up, and there's a bit of a duel, but Voldemort wins. And there's pain that happens, but this is also something that Harry's mastered, which was mentioned in the novels when Dobby died. So pain and grief and love, well, they're all connected, and Harry's been able to differentiate these experientially in such a way that when when Voldemort tortures him and he does the pain spell, well, Harry doesn't have to feel it. And then Voldemort kills him. 
and Harry dies. The next scene that happens, I believe it's chapter 34, is the most significant scene. While the realizations around Snape were the most important plot twists and the most important understandings of the narrative, this chapter is different. This chapter is something else. Because Harry wakes up and it's white all around. And he appears to be in a train station. It's very quiet and very light. Sort of like heaven. Has Harry died and gone to heaven? We're asking ourselves. And he looks around, and there's nothing about except whiteness everywhere. And he puts a white robe on to keep himself warm. And he looks around again, and then there's a sound. There's some sort of gangly creature with blood all over it under one of the seats. And Harry takes a look, and it's, oh... It's really ugly. He's a bit shocked to see it. And we see, well, that's the Horcrux. That's the dark piece of Harry. That's the part of Voldemort's soul that is in him. And he sees it and he's disgusted by it and then he sort of just walks away. And the comment is there, well, when you transcend, you can see the components. When you transcend, you can see the parts. And death is another transcendence. So Harry couldn't have seen what was in him as, you know, parts of good, of the parts of him that are good and the parts of him that are not good, that are not him. This part of Voldemort's soul, because he couldn't transcend it. He was in it. He was in himself. The whole thing was in his experience. It was in his way of being. But now that he's died, now that he's dead, he's transcended and he can see, well, that's a part over there and I'm over here. And I can just walk away from it. I can just let it let it die. And he walks away. He walks along. And he looks around a bit more. And who does he meet but none other than Dumbledore? And it's a very peaceful meeting. And they decide to sit down and Harry makes a comment of oh this looks like the London train station and there's a significance to that too which is that well when Harry went from the muggle world to the wizarding world 
How did he do that? Platform nine and three quarters. He went through the portal on the train station. Which means here, the same thing is happening. He's transcending to another world via the special train station. And Harry and Dumbledore, well, they have a conversation. And it's a very simple and peaceful conversation. And Harry is thinking, well, he's had all these questions. He's had all this confusion. But now it just makes sense to sit and talk and listen. And there's no way that Harry could be angry at Dumbledore. There's no way that he could hold anything against him. He can see that he was just doing the best he could. He was doing, he was seeing that there was more that he could ever possibly understand about what's going on. And it's a very profound conversation. And what Dumbledore says is that power and evil are not the true greatest knowledges or wisdoms of life. And actually the greatest wisdoms of life are to be found in children's tales, in innocence, in relationships with house elves, in loyalty. And Voldemort doesn't understand any of these things. And it's particularly important that Dumbledore mentioned the elves, because we know now that the elves have played a critical role, the house elves, in this narrative. And we think way back to when Hermione was doing her spew campaign of help the elves. We need equality for the elves. And how outlandish that felt for us to see her do that. How silly it seemed. And yet how things turned out. And Dumbledore says the true master of death does not run away from death. He accepts that he must die and understands that there are far worse things in the living world than dying. And he also says, Do not pity the dead, Harry. Pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. And this is the beauty of coming to a moment in our story and inserting the most profound and meaningful thing. And this is something that an author does all that work for. It's really the reason why an author tells a story like this. It's the reason why we follow along this journey that Harry has been on. 
which is that at the critical moment, at the peak, at the deepest moment, at that one moment that has been building up to everything, the author is allowed to insert one thing, one little thing, and it will be the most meaningful thing out of all of it. This is the peak of Harry's journey. This is the wisest character, Dumbledore. And they're together, and this will be the last thing they say to one another. And Dumbledore's talking about love. And then there's one more thing. There's one more step that the author takes. And this is where she steps outside of the narrative itself. And this is the most significant statement that J.K. Rowling has ever made. And it's this. Tell me one last thing, said Harry. Is this real? Or has this been happening inside my head? Dumbledore beamed at him, and his voice sounded loud and strong in Harry's ears, even though the bright mist was descending again, obscuring his figure. Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry. But why on earth should that mean that it is not real? And this is the statement of magic. This is the statement of other worlds. It's the statement of coming of age, of growing up. It's the statement of the hero's journey. And really, ultimately, it's the statement of transcendence. What is real? What is real? Is this just a story in my head? And to realize that J.K. Rowling wrote that. She, she typed it onto a page. Which means that this story, you realize that this story came from her head. This story happened in her head. And as readers... We've been listening along, reading along, watching along, and it's been happening in our head. But of course it's happening inside our head. But why on earth should that mean 
that it is not real. So the other thing that we learn about or Harry figures out or Dumbledore tells him or told him was that, well, Harry can choose to go on a train from one way or he can go back to where he was. And the reason he can do that is because he controls the Deathly Hallows. He controls all three. Which means you can choose to die or not. And so he says, okay, I choose to go back. And he goes back and he comes back to life. And who would it be but Mrs. Malfoy? Malfoy Jr.'s mother is standing over him. And she sees that, oh, he's come back to life. And at that same moment, Voldemort is calling out, is he dead? And she says, well, yes, he's dead. And he's sort of like, shh, don't tell him. We can sneak up on him like this. And so she says, yes, he's dead. And everyone's sad. And well, the the good guys have lost. And then Hagrid walks him into the castle and... They set things up and then, well, just at the last moment, Harry jumps out. Oh, no, before that, actually, there's Neville. So Neville comes forward and he does his act of bravery. And actually, that's a very that's a very deep act of bravery. Is the, Well, the comment there is when, when everything is lost and yet you still stand up to evil or you stand up to darkness, that is the deepest act of bravery. And it's Neville that saves the day because he gets the sword of Gryffindor and he kills the snake. So it's quite a heroic moment for Neville. And we remember that Neville, he was also, well, he's sort of part of the prophecy because he was born on the same day as Harry. And the child that was born on that day, well, that's what the prophecy was saying about who would kill Voldemort. So, in a sense, in a very real sense, Neville is the chosen one. And just at the right time, Harry jumps out and says, okay, let's have it on, let's duel. And Harry even gives him a chance at remorse. He even says, now, do you regret anything that you've done? And, well, Voldemort's long gone. So it's clear that he is pure evil. And there's this thing where Harry says, now who is the wand loyal to? Because you killed Dumbledore, but that's not how it works. And Harry doesn't explain it to him because Harry has his own ideas. But Harry believes that he's the rightful owner of the wand because he controls the Deathly Hallows. And Voldemort, well, he shoots his spell to kill Harry again. And Harry, well, he does the spell to disarm him. He does Expelliarmus. And the wand that is shooting the spell flies out of Voldemort's hand and then lands in, in Harry's hand, and the spell then backfires and kills Voldemort. And that is the end. 
That is the end of Voldemort. That is the end of evil. And the terms and conditions, well, at this point, too late for terms and conditions now, Harry realises that it's not who kills the person that has the wand, but who disarms the person that has the wand. And as it turned out, if we think it through, well, Dumbledore had the Eldar wand, and then Malfroy disarmed him. He didn't kill him, he just disarmed him. And then Snape killed him. So that would have meant that the Eldar wand was given to, loyal to, Malfroy. But then, in the Battle of Hogwarts, Harry disarmed Malfroy, which means that that, that, that wand now is loyal to Harry. So the whole thing of disarm your enemy rather than killing them was of vital importance. And the statement, this is the downright powerful statement that J.K. Rowling is making, is that mindless killing does not bring you power. Mindless killing is not the answer. Killing is not the way. And furthermore, evil collapses in on itself. Evil backfires. And that's what Dumbledore is saying when, I mean, he says it many times, which is that Voldemort doesn't understand certain things. And, and well, we can even say that Dumbledore is wise because he's learnt this for himself. Because Dumbledore's quest for power ended in the death of his sister, but then he learnt the lesson. And that's the difference between Dumbledore and Voldemort. Because Dumbledore is wise, and Voldemort is still just power-hungry. And the power-hungriness has blinded him to the things that can go wrong when you play with power, and you play with magic tricks that you don't understand, and you play with magic that you don't know how it will turn out, and that's how, well, another Horcrux was made without his intention. And that's how you end up thinking the wand is yours when it's not really yours. So what does Harry do? Well, in the book, Harry mends his old wand with the Eldar wand. Because now, well, Harry's got all three. He's got the Eldar wand, the Resurrection Stone, and the Invisibility Cloak. He's, in, he's basically invincible. He's the most powerful wizard ever. And what does he do? What does he do? Well, after mending his wand so that he can use it, He actually breaks the Eldar wand. And he sort of just breaks it and throws it aside. And that is another comment on power. Harry has seen what power has done. He's seen the history of the Eldar wand. Of how many people have been killed over it. How much power lust has been inspired by it. And his friends are like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And the resurrection stone, well, he just drops it in the forest somewhere. I don't know what he does with the cloak. Maybe he he keeps the cloak. Maybe that's his one souvenir. 
But that's, well, that's the wisdom of Harry, you know. You've got this wealth of experience. You've gained all this power. And there's so much that Harry could have done with that power. He could have made himself king of the magic world. And yet he decides not to use it. He decides not to go ahead with it because he sees that power corrupts. And there are people in this world that live like that. There are people that have tremendous power, interpersonal power, consciousness awareness, political power. Well, political power, let's leave politics out of it. But I mean, this, the sort of person where you say, well, why aren't you a politician? You would be really good at it. Well, that's the sort of person we're talking about. Because it's the, the politicians that, well, they have a different relationship to power. They don't have that wisdom, which makes them, well, that's why they are politicians. It's quite hard to illustrate the kind of powers people can have and not use Particularly in, particularly in the realms of spiritual teachers and gurus, because when you have a, when you have an interpersonal, what, what what should we say? When you have an interpersonal magic, yeah, magic is probably the right word. When you can do interpersonal magic spells, you basically can control people. You can basically draw. You can raise an army. It's basically what you can do. And yet there are people who have those skills and they even see it happening and they stop it happening. They decide not to pursue that. So that's a very important lesson. That's a very, uh, a very profound statement. As there, there are a lot of profound statements in this last few chapters. And then, well, now that this is all past, there's actually, the, the way the novel ends, the way Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows ends, is there's actually a big celebration. There's a big party. There's this big banquet. There are streamers. There are fireworks. There's music. And there's cheering. And there's a, it's this huge, just raging festival it's just the giant ah everyone is happy and cheering and even even the malfoys are there they're sort of in the corner and sort of sort of smiling but sort of not smiling and they're not really sure should they be happy or not be happy and they sort of stick around anyway so that's another funny moment but this is not in the movie the movie ends on a very melancholy sort of empty silence way of expressing how we feel. They sort of just leave us with the feeling. And I remember that in the first movie, that the first movie ended with a big celebration, like the big party. And it might have been, you know, the way they decide to release it. They might have been thinking, oh, we'll have the big celebration at the end of the first movie because we might only make one movie. It might be a flop and it just has to be self-contained. And, well, now that they've used it, they can't use it for the last one. And then the other thing is that it's such a long movie. 
I mean, they've done it in two parts, but they don't want to drag it on too long. But may- maybe not. Maybe they could have done it in the same amount of time that they did the the melancholy, quiet scenes. I don't know. But the the difference is important because the story ends in celebration. What happens when you conquer death? What happens when you understand power? What happens when you make peace with the characters in your life? You celebrate. What happens when you learn all that you've learned through friendship of being annoyed at your friends, bickering with your friends, fighting with your friends and breaking up with your friends, then coming back? After all that, after everything, the final thing, the very end is celebration. The homecoming is celebration. And it's such a beautifully written passage because you have all the characters that have been built up come together and they're all just just over the moon. It's just ecstasy. And you can read along that last... You read, read all seven novels. This is like the dessert. This is the real payoff because everything's resolved and everything's beautiful. It's just happiness. It's just pure happiness. You know, those last few chapters... That last chapter of celebration is just all the can you see. Ah, oh, there's Hagrid and oh, and there's McGonagall and ah, oh, there's this fellow and that fellow and oh, here's my friend over here and all here are all these other friends and ah, oh, it's just it's amazing. It's a beautifully written ending to the series. So there's an epilogue. There's a, what is it, 19, 13 years later, or 19, 19 years later, something like that, where there's a big, you know, a couple of pages of blank, and then you turn over and it says 19 years later. And Harry is on the train station again, but he's with his wife, Ginny Weasley, and his friend is there, Ron. He's with his wife, Hermione, and they're dropping the kids off. They're dropping the kids off on their first day at school. So what does this say? What does this say? Some people, I think, have said she didn't need to add this. This was sort of not needed, but I think it is needed. I think there are some deep statements in here. There are some important statements in here. And what happens? Well... Harry's son is there and he's sort of bouncing around and he's looking at some other people and he's saying, oh, I hope I'm not in Slytherin. And Harry's thinking, oh, that's exactly what I was thinking. And actually, Malfoy's there as well. Harry and his friend and Harry and Ron look at Malfoy and they sort of like give a bit of a nod, you know, Malfoy's dropping his kids off. So, well, how did things turn out? Was it a happily ever after? And we see, well, now the intergenerational beef, it's sort of trying to happen. It's also naturally coming up in Harry's son. He's saying, I don't want to be in Slytherin. So despite Harry's best efforts at raising his kids, (laughs) it's still, he still has a prejudice already against the, the dark side. And, well... Harry sits sits him down and he says, Now, your name is Albus Severus. And the reason you were named that, Albus, 
Severus Potter, was because you were named after the two most brave wizards he ever knew. And there's something in a name. And there's something in a, in a story. Because as I read this epilogue and read about, well, Harry's now got his conservative values and he's raising a family, he's got a standard job. We get this sense, and this is the sense you should have when you get to this stage, that there is this huge, massive story, this incredible tale of adventures and darkness and heroic moves and all these characters, it's just this epic, epic, huge thing in Harry. And what he's doing is he is imparting that to his son. He's telling that world, he's having that world come across into the world of his son. And he does it with a few short words by simply saying, you were named after two of the bravest wizards I ever knew. And well, you get this sense that, does his son get it? Does his son realize that there's this huge story behind what Harry is telling him? How could his son really know all of what's happening? Like, like what, what do you do when you're Harry Potter? Like, like, what did Harry Potter do afterwards? Like, you get this sense he would have to sit around and tell all his friends what happened. You know, there's this thing in the arc of the stories, which is that Harry and his friends experience something and then they talk about it and sometimes in the novels Harry experiences something and then he runs back and tells his friends and then other times in the story Harry experiences a whole bunch of things and there's no time for Harry to tell his friends and well now we're at the time when Harry's conquered death and he's found the Deathly Hallows and all this stuff and he's got all the time in the world now now it's the story of his life now he can sit at length and he will be friends with Ron and Hermione for the rest of his life. And they could talk about it for years because of how much that has happened. And it influences how his family life is. He's got conservative values, but there's something different about it. It's not conservative in the way that the Dursleys are because he has experience on his side and he's actually trying to impart his knowledge of the other world or the other story to his child, which is why he's named his child Albus Severus. And there's something in a name, like there's a, there's a name, like a name is a character in a story. And your parents will name you after that character in a story because they believe that character is significant. So my parents named me Andrew. This is why this is the Andrew Lake podcast. And Andrew, well, who was Andrew? Andrew was the first apostle of Jesus Christ. So it's a Christian name. And what is Christianity? Well, it's an epic story. It's this huge story. It's a story of significance to my parents. And, well, they decided to name me so that I would have at least some connection or some understanding of 
this story and then, and it's a it's a it, it's so hard to talk about such big things in words they're such epic complicated like you you really get like the sense the magic of the book at this stage in the book of Harry Potter the magic is just it's glowing it's emanating your whole like your whole body is shaking with how much magic is happening and how much how much of the other world is right in us and well, now I have a different name. <laughs> now my name is Dosta, and that's a Neo Sanyasin name. And once again, well, why is my name Dosta? That is also an epic long story. It is an epic. <laughs> it's going to be a. It's. It, it actually is probably going to be about a seven-part novel series, <laughs> which would be this: the adventures of, the adventures of Dosta. <laughs> The Chronicles of Dosta <laughs> is coming. I'll write it one day. Well, hold me to it, but also don't hold me to it. <laughs> but it's the same thing. It's it's a name as a part of a giant story and a world of wisdom meets a world of ignorance, which is the world of wisdom, which is Harry, now the wise old man, to the child. Albus Severus Potter, his son, his younger son. So it's a beautiful scene. I think it was definitely needed. And yeah, we can get so much out of these books. So I love them. I love them. I think they're great. I think they're incredible stories. And it's been nothing but a pleasure to talk about them and to go through them. And I hope that I've offered up some different ideas, some different comparisons, some different insights. They've definitely made an impression on me, and it's a it's a very strange impression because I've read it I've read them as an adult, and it took me like what what did it t- take? It took like I read one per day for the first six. So you can read them in a day if you're, you know, you're quick with it. It doesn't take that long to read. And then the last one took me, I think, two days or three days because it's dense. It's very dense. And that's why we spent more time talking about it here. So that's where the story ends. Thank you. Now all all we have to do now is <laughs> all we have to do is celebrate. <laughs> we can laugh and do some streamers. We need some music or something. <laughs> yeah, I haven't played music on the podcast for a while. Maybe I should get back into that. It's because my my current technological setup doesn't allow for it. Is probably why. But really, it's also because we just like talking about Harry Potter. That's what we're here for, isn't it? Or talking about all sorts of things. We talk about lots of things on the Andrew Lake podcast. So because we're at the end of the plot, we're going to finish up. So I hope you have a beautiful day. I will add some additional comments, some quick additional comments to to really just finish it off. But... This episode will keep where we are now. So 
I hope you have a beautiful day and celebrate. Just enjoy. You don't need a reason to celebrate. You've already made it. You've already, you you are the chosen one. (laughs) So that's all I have to say for now.